You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the last week of April and welcome to The Perth Property Show. As always, I'm your host, Trent Fleskins, and today I have our first ever plug, I think. I'll be hosting a webinar on Thursday night at 5.30pm, solely focused on the topic of coronavirus how it's going to affect our market, how it's been affecting our market and how Perth's been faring up until this point in time. So avoiding risks, finding profit, that's what it's called. Get onto the Strategic Property Group website, register for free for that webinar this Thursday at 5.30pm. Dave Gilbert, you're in the studio again and if you're in the studio, that means we are rounding out our subdivision series. Yes, thank you for having me back. Let's kick off a little bit prior to where we left off so we can have a bit of a recap. Last time we got up to our guests formal approval. Let's start at getting, once we've got those clearances from those stakeholders, what are the next steps there? What do we really need to be focusing on in order to be as time efficient as possible and also as cost effective? Yeah, so up to this stage, we've got our conditional approval from WPC. We've gone out, done our works, and we've now received all our clearance letters back from the different authorities. So local government, Watercourt, Western Power, for example. Those clearance letters now need to go back to WPC to show them that you've actually met the conditions. So you've got a particular planning officer sitting there who's managing your file, waiting for you to come back at some point within that three-year period with your clearance letters, and then they can move on from there. Yeah, so it's not actually to that stage where they've reviewed your clearance letters that your subdivision then is actually approved because up to that point has been conditional subject to you doing works. So once you've lodged all those clearance letters, they've reviewed it, it's now approved, at that stage, what it's telling everyone else is that you have completed the subdivision and you're now ready to apply for titles. By everyone else, I mean your mortgagees. So you can go back to your mortgagees and say, look, complete all the subdivision works. All I need is your consent and then I can apply for the new titles. Why do you need consent from a mortgagee? And what is what are you looking to achieve there? So it would be not just your mortgagee, but anyone else that has a registered interest in the title. So it could be a mortgagee, if you've got a joint tenant on your title, they'll have to sign off all the paperwork as well. If so they weren't already a part of the subdivision application. Which would be unusual. But anyone that does have a registered interest in that title must give consent to do the subdivision or, or any actions that would affect that interest. Because so the subdivision title. hasn't happened yet, has it? It's just we've been doing all the works to make it approvable, but the subdivision isn't actually happening until Landgate goes and separates those titles, right? That's exactly right. So it's not until the very final point that you will then have separate titles that you can then go and actually settle on or sell. So it's not until the very end process that you might be able to see any sort of return on this whole process. Okay, so we've sent our clearance letters in via email to WAPC sitting in William Street in the city. Uh, They're looking at it going, yep, this all seems good. We've got clearance from all the stakeholders. Now we're going to provide formal approval. Uh, How do we actually ask them for formal approval? So we'll be lodging, it's an online lodgement to WPC. It's got a form 1C lodgement. You'll pay an application fee when you lodge that one. What's that? Depending on, on the lot, usually be starting at somewhere around for a two or three lot subdivision, $600. And then it's going to be with them for at least 30 days. Well, they've got 30 days to make a decision. So you spent $3,500, give or take on the actual application. And now you've got to spend another 600 bucks on the finalization of it. So you're not getting out of the WAPC without giving them over four grand at any one point in time. Yeah, absolutely. So just 
job OPC's application fees alone for your subdivision, you're going to be starting at four grand. You're not going to get it any cheaper than that because that's just what their fees are, excluding everything else. So once they've reviewed it, they've had it for a month, they'll then place the plan in order for dealings, which means you can give a copy of that to your mortgagee and a letter requesting a um, consent. Most of those actions, I would recommend that you engage a summit agent just because they're going to know the right avenues to go through. Wander back a little bit. You said the phrase in order for dealings. Can you explain that a bit more? Because that's an important phrase in this process for the banks, for Landgate, everyone involved really. In order for dealings is what they place on the plan. So your subdivision plan, your new lots that you, you've created and you had your surveyor go out there and actually mark it up. So by plan, you mean the registered piece of paper that your surveyor has drawn and submitted to Landgate? Yep, that's right. So, so far he's gone out, done the field work, he's drawn up the plan, he's lodged it to Landgate. It's now sitting there, Landgate sent it to WPC, saying, look, we've got this plan here. That plan could sit there for two years, waiting for you to complete the works for your subdivision. That plan's sitting there, waiting for you to give it all the paperwork to WPC. They check to make sure you've done the works for the subdivision. They then join all that paperwork together, stamp it saying in order for dealings, which means that the subdivision is approved. Yeah, so you're saying over to you, Landgate. Yeah, so it's telling everyone else that you've completed the subdivision and it's a piece of evidence or paper that you can give to your mortgagee or anyone else you need to saying, look, I've actually done everything. It's just not me saying that I've done this. WPC approves the subdivision. But they're not going to go and title the property just because WPC's put it in order for dealings, are they? There's a few things, as you said, one of them being a letter of consent from the mortgagee, if there is one on the title, to say, yeah, we're okay with this. But you also have to put an application to Landgate as well. Yeah, so you have to actually apply for that. So you've got that plan that's been placed in order for dealings. You now, next step or final one that you need to do is actually apply for, to create the titles for that plan. So that's an application for new titles. Application for new titles. Who normally does that? I'd recommend a summer agent do it for you. Is that because they're the profession that has the most scope and authority over titles and transferring of, of land titles and those sort of things? They, they understand the process and they've got that relationship with Landgate to get that document uh, formalized in the relationships with, with the banks so that's actually this next that's step a good point we're actually applying for the, the consent to mortgagee you need to make sure you're actually sending it to the right department it's not going to be your local bank that you go to that produces it it's going to be a separate department within that mortgagee that does that work so if you can go to a professional that is dealing with the banks all the time they know the people who are going to be signing off on this stuff they're the ones that can get in contact with them the quickest. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting there waiting a month to get some sort of feedback from your bank and then they'll say, I need this, I need that. It really gives one or two people in a whole national bank that sign these things off, isn't it? Yeah. So if you can't get to those couple of people sitting in their little silo somewhere in Australia, it's not going to happen. How long have you seen consent for mortgagee application or request, I should say, sitting with a bank holding up titling? I've had one recently that was three months that I've seen them sitting there. And um, that blows out your whole subdivision plan, doesn't it? Oh, if the bank doesn't get back to you in the two weeks we're hoping for, there goes another 10 weeks. Yeah, it, it's a third of your subdivision time now added to your subdivision overall. So. Just because someone's left it on his desk or it hasn't even gotten to his desk somewhere in Australia in the bank that has the mortgage over your property. Yeah, and it's that one person that's dealing with it. So yep. if they're not signing it off, no one else is and no one else wants to touch it. Mm. So that's where these relationships that the settlement agents, for example, have where they're dealing with these people all the time become like a great benefit where they can on a bit more of a personal level push it through, push massage it through. it through. And yeah. what you're saying is you want a settlement agent that is 
well-versed in subdivision, not just regular Joe, your settlement agent who's doing purchases and sales. Yeah, well, they're all, all those different documents are going to different departments. So if you can go to someone that's doing this sort of stuff all the time, that's the way to go. All right, so we've finally gotten a consent letter back from the mortgagee. We've already lodged our application for new titles with Landgate. Yeah, when you, you lodge it, you pay another application fee for the new titles application fee to Landgate. So you'll be looking around $200 and just in their fee alone. They will then process the applications based on the order that they've been lodged. It goes in a queue. It most likely won't be touched for two weeks. Someone will then review it, make sure the paperwork's correct, and then they'll issue the new titles. So you'll be looking at somewhere between that first original lodgement to actually getting the titles registered about two weeks. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Okay. We've seen it go out personally between the two of us up to four or five weeks. At the moment, it's, um, yeah, a lot longer time frames. And we can understand that. So if you add that, let's say on average, three weeks with Landgate to an average of probably three weeks to four weeks, most likely waiting for consent from a bank, and then another month or so with WPC at the start of this last phase to process that form 1c and send it in order for dealings we're probably looking at around three months from the time that you've lodged to form 1c to the time you have your titles in your hand yeah that's right yeah starts to add up doesn't it when people would think that it might be a fortnightly process yes and that's how we get back to that magical number of seven months of paperwork Mm. because we've just had three months at the very start of just that first application that we lodged to WPC and then ignoring everything else we've now got another three months at the end and before that was applying for clearances so there's a month there yeah so, so there's three, literally one seven three. months where we're waiting for people to come back to us or do things for us and then you have to add on the time of actually doing the things they've asked you to do yeah well it's seven months of us chasing up people yeah trying to get things out as soon as we can so you can see how at an earliest it's pretty much seven months but on average, it can be most of the time anywhere between 9 to 12 months based on how complex the conditions are and how slow some of these timeframes push out to that are out of the owner's or project manager's control when it comes to those seven months at a most optimized time pushing out a bit more. Yeah, we'll be looking at 12 months realistically because ignoring that paperwork and just applications, we're also going to be doing the work side of things. We're actually waiting for... Western Power and Water Corp to come back to you with the information that you need to do the works. So you're waiting for them to give you the information and then you can start. So if you are first time doing this, this whole process is going to draw out quite long because you're going to be waiting for people to come back to you, you're going to be waiting for information and you're going to be sitting there scrolling on the internet trying to find out how to do a subdivision, you know, who's the best contractors to go through. It's something that if you're doing it all the time and you can make assumptions based on your experience, we actually start saving some time. Yeah, very much so. That's where that time efficiency and the cost efficiency of getting the right team around you to do this on a volume level can really be demonstrated by having a good project manager in the subdivision space. Yeah. Mate, thank you very much for that chat. It's number three. We've just finished up num- part three of that three-part series on subdivision. I think what it does demonstrate is that whilst the process probably isn't rocket science, there is a lot of risk in terms of time and costs involved that are very much open to an owner, especially first-time owner in the subdivision space if they don't engage the right people with the right experiences to get this done quickly 
and as cost effectively as possible. Yeah, and we've seen with our own experience within the last two years, the requirements for that subdivision has also changed. So you, if you're not doing it all the time or you're not up to date with all different policies, it can have a huge impact on what your end figure is going to be for your subdivision. Thanks very much, Dave. I really appreciate you coming in. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you in again soon to chat about even more nerdy details on a subdivision <laughs> in this ever-evolving space in West Australia. Can't wait. Thanks, mate. Okay, so we have spotlight time. We are chatting about the Northeast family stronghold of Naranda this morning. One of my stomping grounds back when I was younger. Spent a lot of time out at that sports complex. One agent to talk to. He is the top agent in Naranda. Been around for a long time. Gregory Swiatek, thank you very much for coming in, mate. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Gregory, let's start off real quick as I like to from the start of uh, Naranda's birth. It was many decades ago, but it's uh, also still feels like a fairly newish suburb. How does that how does that happen? Uh, well, actually, uh, Noranda w- used to be part of Morley, uh, if you know that. Obviously, you're coming from Morley. I think it was late 70s that they renamed part of Morley into Noranda. And since then, you know, we're growing and growing. But we're still undeveloped in many ways. In like there's not much building activities at the moment. So that is all in front of us. You make a good point on the lack of building and I think for me one of the biggest reasons would be that most of the houses there were built well, double brick homes, pretty big family homes. If you consider that it would still have been a part of Morley, it would have been for a reason one of the most expensive areas of Morley with regards to they were the newest, biggest homes at the time on still quite big blocks. So for a large part of it, most of those houses probably don't need to be knocked down yet. As you say, the properties are pretty good size and sitting on big blocks, and they're not ready to be demolished. They're also not really zoned for subdivision, are they? There's obviously your your opportunities, and we'll talk about them later in the segment. There's opportunities with regards to corner blocks, which I'm sure you've seen a couple of of those opportunities being taken up. But for the most part, most of the properties aren't developable. And if they are, the houses are so big and expensive that you wouldn't pay to knock them down anyway. That's that's what it is, actually. The, the houses are too big to be de- uh, demolished. So, for example, if you go to Morley, closer to Galleria, the houses will sit on bigger blocks, but they are small houses. The old they're three all three by ones. All three by ones. Mm. So, so it's okay to demolish them and just build two or three on the land. But Norenda is different. Actually, Norenda used to be co- like a D suburb in the area because of the size of the uh, the blocks and size of the houses and, and the quality of houses as well. So we did have really that good stands in, in, in the area as a, as a good, good suburb. Now, when we think about the lifestyle in Noranda, I always like to hark on shopping centers, sports opportunities for the kids and also schooling opportunities. Uh, when I think back to my young days of living in Morley, I always used to recognize Naranda as having really good junior schools and also really good sporting facilities. The netball center, the athletic center, the soccer club there. From, as a Morley boy, I'd always be traveling to Naranda for all these opportunities. Yeah, we've got all that stuff in Naranda. A netball club is probably one of the uh, the biggest in, in Western Australia, actually. And if you go there on the weekends, uh, it's hard to get a parking there because there's so many people participating in those games. The soccer club is very, very popular as well. The bowling club is actually run very well. 
There's an RSL there as well, isn't there? There used to be, but they're more like a bowling club and tennis clubs and netball and, and soccer as well. Yeah. And that for me is what you want from a suburb. You want to have all of that sporting opportunity there. And as we said before, you know, you're at Camboon Primary School, Naranda Primary School, those are the schools that really stand out in the area. Well, that's why Naranda can be called a family suburb. Because, all, as you, you mentioned, all of those things. And not only that, we've got, for such a small suburb, we've got so many parks. So you see people walking around with dogs and, and just enjoying outdoors. And uh, Norenda, in some ways, is a very, very quiet suburb as well. And not much is happening. And that's probably what you want for a family. You're 100% right there, Gregory. It's one of those suburbs where you don't really need to drive through it unless you live in it or unless you've got somewhere to be in Naranda. You don't have an Alexander Drive going through it or a Morley Drive going through it. You're either side of it. So people will go around Naranda to get either out past Naranda into Bennett Springs or up north into Lansdale or they'll be on Tonkin Highway or Reed Highway. You'd never really have to go through Naranda if you didn't live there. Well, that, that's correct. That's one, one of the reasons is that maybe not many people know about Norenda because, as you say, you know, it's sort of like a tucked away from everything else, but it is quiet, so it's, it's good for the families. Have you seen a benefit to all the works, the general works that have been going on on the Tonkin Highway, Reed Highway exchange there? Obviously, some real upgrades to that Banara Road precinct and uh, intersection. Things have changed, haven't they? And jumping onto Reed Highway, as you usually would through McGilvery Ave, couldn't be more opportunistic than it is these days, right? Well, access to uh, access to Reed Highway is pretty good. Um, it's very private, really, isn't it? It is, actually. The only thing is that maybe Tonkin Highway is not accessible as before, and some people might complain about that. But we've got less traffic. Mm. So that means that it's safer and it's cleaner because there's less cars on the road. So if you wanted to get south on Tonkin Highway, would you be probably flicking back onto Reed Highway to swing around or would you be going through Morley? Probably you might go through Emberson Road and towards Morley Drive and then wherever you want to go. Do, that, do you think that's created more of a rat run on, of Emberson Road? You're probably less desirable to live on that street these days? It's quite possible that people in Emberson Road, uh, they were a little bit disappointed, but hey, we have to get somewhere. Yeah, it, it's become a busy street, I think, these days. It is, but not that busy, actually. Not that busy. And it's Morley Street anyway, so Narenda well, people won't be too bothered. Well, there's part of uh, of it actually belongs to Narenda, but uh, most of it's actually in Morley, yeah. Yeah. We've spoken about access. Uh, for me, one of my favorite parts of that Narenda lifestyle is your ability to jump on Reed Highway and have that opportunity where what is really just a few hundred meters, no other traffic, you're on Reed Highway, you're either going straight to the beach or you could go all the way down to Armadale. Uh, nearly without any traffic lights these days, and especially the airport. Oh, access to all these amenities are very, very good, actually. Even uh, if you go, if you want to go to the city, it's only you go to Alexander Drive and maybe just like 10, 12 minutes. I tried it, actually. It took me about 12 minutes to get there. You go to the uh, beach, it's very, very easy access again. Airport just around the corner, and then you take Banara Road and you're in uh, Swan Valley. Yeah, there you go. Another p- perfect point too. You, you really have access to a lot of the things that make Perth a great city. You've mentioned Swan Valley as well. We, we forget about that very often. Let's move on to buyers and sellers, the people that you deal with every day. What would be your typical seller? How would you represent them in terms of the phase of their life 
and their motivations for moving on? Well, I've been in the area for a long, long time. And maybe up to 10 years ago, we would have people selling mainly because the kids are moving out and the houses are becoming too big. Downsizes. Downsizes, yes. But at the moment, you know, we've got a, a mix of everything. So we've got uh, downsizes. We've got people who just moving, say, for example, from Morley because uh, Morley is very, very sort of like a development area. And still lots of people want to have bigger blocks. Um, they don't want to live on half blocks or y- units or villas. So the natural way is actually to go to to Narenda. So your sellers are most like mostly downsizers and your buyers are people upsizing into that's a family exactly home. That's exactly true. That's exactly true. That's, and that's do you see a lot of people as first home buyers buying in Naranda or is it really a second home? I would say really second home. Although if you, as a first home buyer, so if you go into a villa uh, development or duplexes, yes, then, then there are lots of first home buyers in that section. But in terms of homes, I would say second, second uh, home is buyers. Is that because the price point as a differentiator to Morley, for example, is just a bit too high for that first home buyer. It's You're really paying 500s and even 600s to get into Naranda, aren't you? At the moment, it's probably between five and six, and that gets you pretty nice four-bedroom, two-bathroom home, and some of them will be even renovated. Uh, then you have to pay over 600 But if it's unrenovated, you know, you can get something about five, maybe touch over five. Mm. Um, that's getting on the high end of a first home buyer, isn't it? it well, that's exactly true, you know. But uh, most home first home buyers will be kind of like a four hundred and four fifty, and we don't have too many houses like that. The houses are just too expensive. They're still too well appointed and too big. They're massive houses when you compare them to most other suburbs. Uh, well, they are. They are very solid homes. Actually, it's all double brick, and the sizes are very very big as well. Actually, so in talking about that relationship with buyers and sellers. I'm expecting, like many other suburbs, you would have seen a pickup at the start of the year. Can you confirm that? And then secondly, how is that translated through the virus at the moment with regards to sellers being active in the market? Have they come off? Have they pulled their market off? Is it hard to get listings at the moment? And are there still people calling you as buyers trying to get an appointment to, to buy? Well, the buyers are still around. In fact, actually, I've got a couple inspections after after I talk to you. So the buyers are still there. We were pretty busy around Christmas time or before Christmas time and maybe up to January as well. But with that uh, virus situation, the market not so much stopped, but it obviously uh, there's less uh, sellers. And you see what happens because in Norenda, we've got lots of older people living and those people might be really scared to put their homes on the market now mm. because they don't want any strangers in the house. Uh, all the bugs. That all might the be bugs. Around. Yeah, that's it really. So that's why, you know, we're a little bit quieter in Norenda at the moment. Do you think that in a suburb like Noranda that has people who have lived there for a long time, good solid jobs, although the, obviously the number of transactions has dropped markedly, do you think that it's going to really affect prices once we get back to normal lifestyle or do you think everyone sort of just gets on with it again? Well, Norenda is not a first home buyer area, so really it's not affected too much in terms of uh, finances. Uh, most people will own 
50, 60, 70% of value of their homes. So so the finances are not that critical. But say, for example, Beachboro drops quite a bit, then those people who are selling in Beachboro and they want to come to Narenda, they won't be able to do that. Mm. So, so obviously, a ripple effect. Yeah, exactly. You know? So obviously it will affect Narenda as well. Really good point, Gregory. That is probably overlooked in a lot of the time is the effect that the first home buyer's markets might have on the second home buyer's markets as a barrier to tra- that transition of having more buyers come in. Let's talk about those price points a bit more. We've obviously spoken a lot about that normal 4 by 2 family home being in the 500s to 600s. What's the cheapest thing you could buy in Naranda? You, you mentioned a, a villa or a unit. There's obviously not many of those around. Is it the old semi-detached sort of duplex you're talking about? In terms of dwellings in, in Narenda, we've got roughly about 85% single residential homes. And then the rest would be uh, villas, duplexes, and, and townhouses. At the moment, the cheapest one you can get probably, uh, say, uh, like a two-bedroom villas, roughly about just over 200. Quite affordable. It is actually the same villa could have sold really three, four, five years ago for about 300 and something. Mm. So obviously we have adjusted quite a bit as well in Narenda. But at the moment, yes, you can get something about two, early 200s for a villa, quite an old house on a full block. Uh, you can still get something about 400, mid 400s, something like a four bedroom, two bathrooms, uh, unrenovated, I would say high fours to early fives. And then those uh, renovated probably close to six or maybe over six. Yep. And then double-story houses, uh, good presentation, renovated as well. You might pay even 800 plus. What's the highest you've seen sold in Naranda over your time? There were quite a few sales, uh, over a million. Wow. 1.2 sold as well, even even more as well. So we used to have really good, uh, good prices, but just things are changing now. Is there a specific precinct in Naranda where you'd be looking for those sort of prices? Is there an area where the houses are the grandest, are the largest, are the newest and nicest? You can't say the newest because uh, Norenda is pretty uniform actually. So uh, except for what we call Norenda Park, which is a little bit newer, uh, but I'd say the most expensive part of Norenda would be roughly around Hollister Way, where houses are pretty big actually, uh, okay. two, three-story homes. Uh, unfortunately, there are not many houses on the market at the moment, but those houses will attract uh, eight to mil, maybe yeah, wow. even more. Those are the numbers that you'd be pretty happy getting in a Dianella. Uh, well, the, the Dianella actually, in terms of pricings, the Dianella dropped even more. Mm. It's a good time really to get into into the area because prices are still very, very affordable. Let's move on to subdivision opportunities. And I know the answer is there's not many, but if I was a mum and dad looking to make a buck somewhere on an investment that wasn't just a passive rental and I wanted to do something with that block, maybe cut it in half or whatever it might be, what have you seen going on in Naranda over the last five or so years where you said, oh, that was a good idea, they've done well there and what opportunities might there be in the market coming up? Obviously, the, the corner locations are very, very popular but uh, what's missing in Narenda is accommodation for older people, like over 55s, because there are lots of people who would be quite happy to stay in the area, but they just can't find anything so decent. That, so they leave the suburb? Basically, yes. Yeah. So they want a nice home on a smaller block because they don't want maintenance anymore. But unfortunately, we don't have that. Hmm. So they have to go to areas like Dianella or Inglewood, 
prices are high over there. So I'm pretty sure that they would be very happy to stay in the area and to pay a little bit less and enjoy whatever they've got left over uh, from the sale. It will be nice if the city of Bayswater spent more than five minutes thinking about Naranda and their uh, density for once. It seems like most of their thoughts are always pegged more closely to Bayswater and Morley. Naranda really just misses the, the mark half the time when it comes to the conversation on the round table, doesn't it? As I said before, Naranda is sort of like a tucked away. Mm. So I suppose really the city of Bayswater doesn't really pay too much attention to that, you know, so that's that's the reason. I think that especially along McGilvery Ave and on Banara Road and just the streets back there from the shopping centre would be the perfect place to be able to allow for a bit more density for yeah as you said specific if it was over 55s or even just a, a couple of options for the first home buyer to for the kids to stay in naranda and not have to go out to morley or beachborough and then come back to naranda that would really help with that density and also support the cafes and shops at the Naranda shopping precinct. That would be ideal, and I'm pretty sure that lots of people would be very happy to live in a smaller accommodation, and mm. especially young people or older people. But unfortunately, the zoning will not allow to do anything. Naranda, actually, we've got R25. Uh-huh. And that is the original part of city of Bayswater. But then we've got the second part, which is north of Widgee Road. It used to be a city of Swan area. And over there, they, we've got actually mess because although the zoning is R35, R40, but doesn't go really like a normal zoning. They've got... There's criteria behind it oh, stopping you doing anything with it. There's heaps of restrictions in here and there. So you can't really do much really, although you might have, say, for example, a thousand, twelve hundred thousand square meter block, but you can't do that much with that, you know, because yeah. there's so many d- different restrictions. Yeah, very true. There are opportunities out there, but right now, given the price of the house that you'd have to knock down, the value of it, it's not really stacking up financially for most people looking at it as a development. So really that corner block might be at the moment still the only opportunity that's possibly demonstrating some profit for someone to come in there and put maybe two new houses on that corner. Corners always will attract uh, more attention because uh, people want to be a little bit independent, so they still have that independence. But uh, at the moment, really, the, the land is a little bit too expensive for the developers to do much anyway. Mm. So that's why there's less activities in, in not only in Narenda, but I would say really all over yeah. the metropolitan. Final question, median house price. Gregory Swiatek, what is the median house price in your suburb, Naranda? At the moment, it's just below five hundred. Okay, so with just below $500,000 in your pocket this morning... What would you be going back out to Naranda and buying? Uh, definitely, I would try to get an uh, older style home on a big block. What would be the purpose for that? Keep it for a while and then develop. Fantastic. I like the thought process there. I think, and uh, and that's really where I think Naranda's got a good opportunity. If it's five years, if it's 10 years, whatever it is from now, when those houses start to get ready to be knocked over, some of them at least. Tell you what, it's a great location, it's a great suburb, a great lifestyle to be looking to offer new product right on the doorstep of most of Perth's uh, most valuable assets, really. That's correct, yeah. Gregory, thank you very much for coming in, mate, and hopefully we'll have you in again soon. No problem. Thanks for having me. Guys, just a reminder that this Thursday, 5.30 p.m., we have our webinar. Jump on the website, strategicpropertygroup.com.au, and I hope to have you on board. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. 
If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!